Well, we're getting towards the end of our study here in Noah's flood, and while it's absolutely essential, I think, that we get this part right, because everything that comes after is how God deals with the plan of redemption for mankind. But as I've said multiple times, and I want to keep reiterating it, if you cannot trust the first nine chapters of the book of Genesis, then you shouldn't trust anything that follows. And so we'll spend a little time tonight kind of cleaning up some of the details in the flood of Noah. And before we do that, I want to remind you that this is in no way, shape, or form intended to be the consummate discussion on all things relating to science, especially those sciences of geology and paleontology. But my thought, my goal, my hope, and my plan is to arm you with sufficient information that you can take reasonable faith and not be swayed by the pervasive thinking of our time, which ultimately leads you to conclude that there is no God. You either believe that there is a creator, that creator has made everything it is, or you believe that all that there is came about some other way, chiefly by a gigantic explosion some 13.7 billion years ago that led to all of the order that we see in the universe. And so while we've started with the creation account itself, some astrophysics, a little bit of biology, uh, definitely some chemical compounds that we can look at and go, you know, those things just don't happen by random chance. One of the chief ways that Christians have been kind of forced to deal with the world that we live in in an unbiblical way is through geology. And tonight I want to spend the second half of tonight's study on a PowerPoint that I put together for a Bible college class on creation science and evolution as a debate and really kind of arm you to be able to say to people, you know, there's an awful lot of anomalies in what you think is the way that the world is formed and give you some reasonable doubt to look at what mankind says is the only way that the world could have come about. How many of you have been led to believe, sitting here tonight, that the Grand Canyon was carved by the Colorado River? Raise your hand. It's common. That's what most people think. We're going to look at a couple of theories tonight that seem to indicate that that's probably not true. And yet, it is purported to be absolute fact if you travel to the Grand Canyon. Uh, you will go through all kinds of plaques and you'll look at uh, massive amounts of evidence that people will say that the Grand Canyon was carved over uh, possibly as much as nearly two billion years by a little tiny river, and that little tiny river took and etched through these billions of years of rock layers. Could it possibly be that there was a gigantic catastrophic event that covered the surface of the earth with enough water to cover most of the earth as we now see it, with thousands of feet of water, and that water as it began to fill in those voids and 
fill in the continental drifting and the uplifted mountains and the faults and caverns that are created from water bursting forth from the ground. Could it be uh, that things like the Grand Canyon features thereof were actually formed in a short period of time? And I think there's some reason to believe that not only is that a better explanation for the evidence, but ultimately the proof that's offered that the Grand Canyon is billions of years old actually comes from circular reasoning. And so tonight we'll look at chapter 8, the first 14 verses, and the fourth part of our study uh, here in Noah's flood. Father, we thank you tonight that we can use our minds, that you gave us the ability to think and reason. And while not all of the scientific details are available to anyone, Lord, the, the scientific method cannot be applied uh, to, the, to the creation of the universe, no matter whose time frame and whose framework you use to examine it, because it can't be repeated. It can't be verified. No one was there. But you left us an account of what you did. And while it is a simple outline, Lord, it makes sense. It's reasonable. And so we pray that you'd speak to us as that God who invites us to reason together uh, with you. And so, Lord, speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 8, And then God remembered Noah. And we'll look at this word remembered because it's very particular in the original Hebrew language. And every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God's now going to do three things to begin to cause the waters to recede. And we'll look at those individually as well. And God made a wind to pass over the earth. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. And then the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. And the whole region, uh, which is a part, basically, of Armenia, or was the ancient kingdom of Armenia, uh, is the entire mountain range known as the mountains of Ararat, the highest of which is itself Mount Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th of the month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And so you can kind of see that God is explaining in a very general sense this progressive step of him causing the waters to recede. And I want to remind you of what we looked at as we previously saw uh, some of the ways that the Lord could have accomplished this incredible influx of water to the surface of the earth. Not all of it had to fall from the sky. Much of it could have been subterranean, and a whole bunch of it uh, likely was emitted from what we would call volcanic eruption in, in the form of pyroclasm or, or those flows which come out of volcanoes, which are roughly 75% water. And so you have molten rock, you have steam, you have gas, you have mud, you have all kinds of things that are coming out of the ground. The other thing that we have to remember is nobody was there, nobody saw the earth prior to this time. And so as we think about the earth, we have to kind of erase what we have learned uh, from, in essence, our geology textbooks uh, that up until about 180 years or so ago, almost universally, most geologists believed that God created the heavens and the earth. And along comes Charles Darwin, uh, Lyle, all of these, ultimately, those who would put forth the, the theory of Darwinian evolution in its entirety, which is a system. And so for that system to work, it has to have all the basic sciences uh, in cahoots one with another. 
So you have to have an awful lot of time if you're going to take a blue-green algae and turn that into man. The way that that happened, as you look at the structures of the earth, you look at the sedimentation rates that you see today, and you take mean averages of how those things would work out in a very short period of time, and you extrapolate them into the very distant past. And the reason that this is important is nobody was there, and those things cannot be dated by any dating means that we currently have available to us. So I t- shared with you last week, you can go back about 40,000 years or so with C14 dating or carbon-14 dating. You can use mass, spectrometry, mass spectrometers, and you can look at gas ratios and all kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is nothing can be dated to even hundreds of millions of years, much less billions of years. So when someone says to you something is billions of years old, it is a scientific assumption based on a multitude of varying criteria. Chief among them is the actual layers of rock that have been identified as this layer of rock represents this much time because we need this much time in order for evolution to work. It is not proven It is not something that's a solid science. It is, in essence, an educated guess. And the reason that's important is most of the time, people will just simply take at face value that the earth must be billions of years old. It does not have to be billions of years old if you were a god. And so this particular flood reshapes the surface of the earth and everything on it. The Bible teaches that this flood was global, Most people today would look at that and they go, well, I don't know how you would have gotten that much water. We've looked at some of those systems already. But this was not a tranquil flood. And for those of you that have ever been anywhere where you've seen a flash flood, if you go to the the desert southwest or even here in California, if you travel out in the Mojave Desert during the monsoon seasons when we have those rains that come from the Gulf of Mexico, cause these violent thunderstorms, dump inches of water in a very short period of time, and they rush down a gully. Probably most of you have seen what damage rocks and mud and silt and all those things can do. Uh, And so when you think about that, think about that on a global scale. Now the entire surface of the earth is churning with massive amounts of water, the likes of which we have not ever seen, nor will we see again because, again, God says so. God says, I will never destroy the surface of the earth, nor mankind, again by flood. He's going to make that very clear. But as you start thinking on these things, if there was a global flood, then it had to absolutely destroy the evidence that was visible before the flood. Uh, And we'll look at a number of things tonight and some absolute uh, proof that not only do you not need Uh, tremendous amounts of time, that in fact what is purported to be tremendous amounts of time by geologists can in fact happen in a very short period of time, and you'll be able to see that with your own eyes. The physiographic changes that took place on the earth must have been massive. Now if you imagine that most of what we see today uh, has not recently been covered with water, but if you look at the bottom of an ocean floor, Uh, How many of you have ever been out just past the surf break where you can look back on after the waves go over? Anybody been underwater and watched that happen? If you ever get a chance to do that and you're underneath the water and you look at as the wave breaks and you see the amount of sand that is churned up in, in the water that's directly behind the wave, 
It is a massive amount of sand. Now imagine that the whole earth is churning. The continents are being thrust up at the same time. All this water is moving around. Uh, That you have sediment like you couldn't even possibly imagine being churned up in all of that movement. And all of that settlement is, is ba- or all that sedimentation is basically in suspension in water. Uh, probably most of you have done those little minor science experiments. You may have even done it in junior high, where you take a little bit of dirt and a glass of water and you stir it up and you wait for it to settle out. And if you know anything about that, that, settle, that sedimentation process, the heaviest things fall first, the lighter follow after it, and, and you can make yourself your own little, you know, compressed. A world of layers there in a, in a glass. You can take a look at that. The thing that we can't wrap our heads around is that God did that with the entire surface of the earth. And so when we think of these things, we think of them very small, and God has done this on a global scale. When you study geology, the reason that geologists look at rock layers is they're looking for what is called conformity. Conformity says that these rock layers were laid down you can see the very various colors of them, the type of rock that's in them, and you can look at the separation between them. But there's an interesting thing that has to happen. For it to have conformity, those layers must be bound one to another. Whenever you get to an unconformity, which is what it's called, that is believed to be a significant gap of time. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, there are a number of unconformities in the Grand Canyon. And it is there that arbitrarily a large gap of time is inserted in what should be rock layers compressed one on top of another. And so it is simply an explanation for the data. It is an untestable theory. It's just an assumption. It's based because we believe this is this old, and we have this, and this below it must be this old for us to end up with the billions of years we need for evolution, that this period of time that's missing in all of this sedimentation has to be a whole bunch of millions of years. The reason this is important, I'm going to show you these things. And I want you to be able to kind of identify and go, oh, so that much rock and this much rock equals this many years. Yes, that's exactly what a geologist will tell you. The existence of of fossils in those deposits further go on to keep the theory together. Because you have two things that are working side by side when you're talking about geology. One of them is the rock itself. The other is any fossils that are laid down inside the rock. So as I shared with you before, one of the ways that you date rock is by the fossils that are contained in it. So if you have something that's believed to be the fossil, as in the the case of the mighty tribalite, uh, if you look at those little horseshoe crabs, is what they essentially are, you still find them in the Pacific Ocean today, that's the index fossil of the Cambrian layer. So if you ever find a fossilized tribalite, then that rock is assumed to be between 485 and 540 million years old. Not because the rock's dated, but because it contains that fossil. The the exact inverse is also true. So if you look at the rock layers, and you determine that that rock layer exists somewhere else, because there was a tribalite in it over on continent A, but it's not in continent B. If you find the rock layer, then the rock layer is assumed to be, even though the fossil's missing. So it is a system. And again, the reason that this is important is you look at these things, and everybody goes, well, you know, could God have done this? 
I believe not only could God have done it, this is exactly what he did. In other words, to a large degree, the fossils date the rock and the rock dates the fossils. So one, one is equivalent to the other. Here as we pick up in these verses, verses 1 and 2, And God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, the animals in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the waters of the earth, and the fountains of the deep, the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. Notice it says remembered. A term is actually a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew way of thinking. And it means to begin again to act on the behalf of someone. It doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah for a period of time. It simply means that God was busy doing other things. And so once God was done doing those other things, he then began to act on behalf of Noah specifically. Remember, his whole plan was to destroy the entire face of the earth and every living thing on it. He's done that. So if God did that, you would expect to find billions, trillions of dead things scattered all over the earth, buried very rapidly in layers of sediment. Those things, if they were laid down quickly, would be fossilized. If they floated, they would not be fossilized. If they stayed on the surface of the water, they definitely wouldn't be fossilized. So one of the few things that we find in the fossil layer consistently is very dense animals. And wherever we find them, we assume that those animals are the oldest. But from God's perspective, if he churned up the entire face of the earth, you would expect to just simply see those things which are most dense at the bottom and those things which are lightest at the top. And that is, in in essence, the entire fossil record as we see it in the world today. God does three specific things here as he's going to dry the earth out, three specific actions. He causes the wind to pass over the earth. And while it's true, he uses the Hebrew word ruach, which sometimes can mean the breath of God. Uh, In this case, it doesn't necessarily have to imply that, but it could imply that, that God actually empowered uh, this wind by the Holy Spirit to begin to dry out uh, the face of the earth. Now, how many of you have ever uh, been out in the desert in a windstorm? If you have, raise your hand. That is the most miserable feeling on the face of the earth. It feels like every drop of moisture is going to be sucked right out of your body. Amen? That's the power of wind moving because wind moving causes friction on the surface of your skin. That friction generates heat and the heat then causes all of the moisture in your skin to be spun off as evaporation. And so that's the reason it does that. Now imagine that God has control of virtually every, well, every process but he chooses at a point in time to just cause a continual wind and to blow across the face of the earth. Remember that the weather systems that we see today were not in existence then because the world was a more temperate climate. Uh, Now you've got all this water, and so God is going to put into play all of these geologic forces to begin to thrust up mountains, cause plates to crash into one another, and to move the surface of what we would call the crust of the earth in such a way that he's going to start uplifting things, things that were previously flat, where mountains did not exist, mountains will exist. And he's going to do that in a fairly short period of time. Those sharp temperature differentials, which we have right now, it's been kind of cool the last few days, amen? At least for South Bay, it's been cool. It's not been cool if you live in Breckenridge, Colorado, because it was minus 17 or something there today. So we don't have anything to complain about. But back in the day that Noah enters the ark, the world didn't have any idea what radical temperature differences were. They, they thought of much like we do here. You know, it gets down to 45 degrees and we're looking for down jackets. 
Uh, it was the same thing for Noah. Noah lived in a temperate environment, and so he would, you know, he would not have experienced those types of temperature differentials. But now imagine that you have all of this sedimentation that's moved around on the earth. You have the earth highly likely, completely out of balance at this point in time, because you have all of this sediment that's still semi-liquid all over the face of the earth. Uh, most, if you're a guy in here, you've probably played with mud at some point in time. Uh, it is a semi-solid and so it can be squished and moved and slid around, and it does not take much effort to do that. That's why we jump in it, right? Uh, because it goes flying. And so now imagine the surface of the earth is, in essence, in a semi-liquid form, at least over parts of it. Uh, it's going to be extremely heavy. It's very dense with water. Uh, that, that sediment is going to be able to move around and kind of do lots of different things. So you've got all kinds of events that have happened uh, in the first couple of chapters of of this creation account of the of the flood itself Uh, the poles were located probably in a different place than they are right now so now you've got the earth beginning to tilt on its current axis you've got a whole bunch of physiological changes going on in the earth and so things that we see today which are stable and normal and have been for a very long time um, then were in flux they were changing they were transitioning and so as this water begins to evaporate and moisture starts to drain out Low places that were previously flat uh, gain that water, and so ocean floors, ocean canyons, mountains are uplifting. All this water that was fairly universal on the surface of the earth begins to end up in what we call uh, the world's oceans, uh, in great lakes, in lake basins. And so remember that Psalm 104 actually tells of the creation or the flood account, and it says that the waters of the earth actually covered the earth like a garment. And so it, it shows this picture that God did exactly what he said he did here, and he just covered the earth, in essence, with water. But while he did that, remember that the fountains of the deep erupted, and so you have these subterranean caverns that open up, and you have water coming out of them. They create voids. Uh, most of you have probably seen a sinkhole at some point in time. They're fairly common in the state of Florida. And somebody will, their backyard, they'll, yeah, about, they're mowing their lawn, and all of a sudden they're kid's playset disappears into you know some hole in the backyard that is generally because it's a karst region there's all kinds of limestone sandstone mixed together in that area Uh, it is very very soluble and so as water flows underneath there the soil is removed the rock is removed it dissolves basically in the water it's carried away as sediment and then all of a sudden you've got a void in there and what happens the ground collapses, and then there's a giant hole that reaches the surface. Now imagine that happens on a global level, where you, where you have you know, places that are the size of a state open up. Well, of course, what you'd end up with ultimately is an ocean floor. What you'd end up with is maybe a, a seabed, those types of things. And so God puts into motion all the plates and everything else that move around on the earth today, and as he does so, he begins to thrust up mountains. Verse 3, it says, the waters returned off the face of the earth continually. Now, we see this process today in our river systems. So if you were to go, for instance, to try and find the headwaters uh, of, say, the Colorado River, you'd have to go along the Continental Divide in the state of Colorado, and you would find a little tiny tributary, a creek, and from that creek it turns into a larger creek, and from that larger creek to a larger still creek, ultimately into a river, And eventually it turns into the mighty Colorado. It's exactly what God's getting at. To this point, water did not do that. 
Water primarily was artesian. If it was flowing on the surface of the earth, it came up from the ground, flowed somewhere, disappeared back in. It was kind of cyclical that way. Now we have processes of evaporation, cloud cover, precipitation. That precipitation falls as rain and snow and higher elevations. The snow melts. The water begins to flow. It goes into smaller creeks. And so he begins to say, from here on out, this is the process that's going to under be undertaken, water will begin to flow off of the surface of the earth. How does it do that? It flows through canyons and it flows through mountain valleys and and we end up with the world that we currently see. I believe it's also at this time uh, that God began to push the tectonic plates around and volcanic mountains, uh, excuse me, such as Mount Ararat were pushed up, our own Sierra Nevadas, the Cascades, all primarily igneous and and faulted underneath and and shoved up into the air. But over the top of them, as we saw last time, uh, very often there's a layer of of limestone. Typically in that limestone you see fossils indicating that at some point in time these elevated mountain ranges uh, were in fact seafloor, which is exactly what you would expect if the world was completely covered by water. And so when you think about the world that we see today, you kind of have to look at it as if there are two different worlds, one that existed before the flood and one that exists after the flood. Uh, And whether you go to ICR or Answers in Genesis or uh, creation.com, there's there's more scientific evidence there than you would probably ever want to read in your entire life. That's why I'm trying to condense it down for you uh, so that you can kind of look at it from a very particular point of view, and that particular point of view is, how do I reason this stuff out? How do I talk to somebody about these things? Is the flood even reasonable? Because what we find here is is Noah now is going to see the mountains begin to appear. In verse 6 it says, and so it came to pass at the end of the 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which highly likely was nothing more than a parapet wall uh, up on the top of the ark that allowed sunlight to come in, and he opens that and he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up on the earth. Now, if you know anything about ravens, uh, ravens are a scavenger. They'll eat just about anything, and they will keep going until they find something to eat. So he fir- sends out first a scavenger, uh, and it keeps going. And he also set out from, from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Now, doves are fairly particular about where they will nest. They're fairly particular about their food sources, and they are not scavengers. So you have one scavenger that would easily feast on carrion, and you have one bird that's extremely picky about its diet, and he sends out both. So God is quite wise, because if he just simply sends out a raven, chances are it's probably not coming back. But the fact that it doesn't come back is an important piece of information. That means it was able to land somewhere because they cannot continually fly. So there is some place that this raven can go and some place this raven can land. But the fact that it doesn't come back indicates that that's true. The dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned to the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her in and drew her back into the ark unto himself. And he waited yet another seven days and again sent the dove out from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth, and so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again unto him any more. And so he's, he's kind of making, God's given him a test here. So if, it's going to be, if you're going to be able to get out of the ark, you're going to know because these 
uh, two birds combined, one a scavenger and one uh, that will very, in a very picky sense, want to land in a tree and want to have a certain uh, type of diet, uh, you're, you're going to send them both out. And once, once that information comes in, uh, that'll be the key that I'm going to let you out of this ark. Verse 13, it goes on, and we'll finish up verses 13 and 14. And it came to pass in the, six, in, in the 600th year, the 601st year, excuse me, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. And he looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried up. And so this picture of this in, incredible catastrophic event is it even reasonable to even think about these things? The existence of, of a flood narrative outside of the Bible is one of the most common themes throughout almost all of anthropology. There are at least 270 flood legends from all over the earth. They're virtually every continent. Uh, you, you don't have to look very far. Uh, and almost always they are a single family that somehow survives a massive and a catastrophic flood. And they exist in people in Polynesia. They exist in uh, Europe, European continent. They, they exist in Asia. They exist in Africa. And so when you think about these things, I'll just give you a couple of them because they're, they're interesting. One of them is the Hawaiian legend. Uh, and long after the death of the, the first man, uh, this, this second family, if you will, uh, the first man has passed on. Uh, he, he's now going to set out in this voyaging canoe. This voyaging canoe has a house on it. And again, this is an artist rendering. I didn't get this from, like, you know, I didn't get a photo or anything. But long, long after the death, there, there, the story goes, the legend goes, that there, was, uh, there weren't any good men left on the face of the earth, but there was one. And that one good man gets in this voyaging canoe and he sets out, and like a really good voyager, he ends up in the Hawaiian Islands. If I was going to go someplace, I would go to the Hawaiian Islands too. So Hawaii has a legend, a flood legend. And interestingly enough, it's only Nu'u and his family that are saved. And so Hawaii has a legend. The Chinese also have a legend, and it is even more intense a Chinese classic, really. It's the story of Fuhi, and he's considered to be the father, actually, of the Chinese civilization. But history records that he, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters uh, were ultimately the only people left on the face of the earth. They escaped in a great flood, uh, and, and they repopulated the earth, and they began with exactly eight people. Now, bear in mind, uh, there were no Hebrew Bibles translated into Chinese uh, two and a half thousand years ago. So it's pretty likely they didn't copy the story from anywhere, but it is likely that for some reason they understood that the man who repopulated earth was left with he, his wife, and three sons and their wives, which is exactly the biblical narrative. Interestingly enough, it's also found in the Toltec civilization. So the Incans, the Mayans, the Toltecs, uh, all Central and Latin American peoples, uh, primarily North, uh, South America, uh, and into the Mayan regions, which would be Belize and Guatemala and Nicaragua, uh, the central part and Southern Mexico. 
And so, same thing. They have a legend. And their legend is really interesting because it says they, in essence, got into a great box. And that great box floated on the surface of the great waters. And they wandered for some 104 plus years. And ultimately, uh, after all of this time, now remind yourselves that this is not real ancient history. This is only about 600 years ago. And, and so these legends persist all over the face of the earth. And basically, they actually go so far as to tell us that the first world lasted for 716 years and was destroyed by a flood that covered the highest mountains, and only this one family, Coxtox, survived. And so this is a very common, absolutely not unique narrative that exists all over the world in almost all of the world's great cultures. And so it's not something that is like, you know, mythical in that sense. It's actually believed by most people to be true. And so when you think about the flood, it's not, you know, if you were to ask somebody who's of Incan or Mayan or Toltec descent, they would say, yeah, that's what the people believe that I come from. Chinese would say the same thing. How about geologic evidence for the flood? Is there any? And again, this is, this is one of those places where we're going to be challenged in our world today. Most people, when they say, well, you can't honestly believe that the Grand Canyon was formed in a very short period of time. Because when you look at the Grand Canyon, uh, you'll see all this incredible layering, the Kaibab limestone and, and all of the various layers that must be millions or billions of years old. And people look at it basically because of the Colorado River, and they say that because the Colorado River must be the way that that canyon exists, and you can kind of see it uh, in the center right portion of the photo, you can see the Colorado River flowing through there. Now imagine that the prevailing theory is that little tiny river did all of that. And at some point in time, that little tiny river was much wider than that, so it kind of starts to get closer to the biblical narrative uh, as, you look at the, as, as you look at the top layers uh, being eroded. But when you look at textbooks, and this happens to be one out of a Prentice Hall book, which they still use this exact same book, by the way, uh, e- even though it was written in 1992, uh, it says over millions of years the Colorado River has carved out the Grand Canyon from solid rock. That's the theory. And so when you look at the layers of rock, in order for that to be true, You have to start with something because remember that the assumption is we have needed billions of years for life to have evolved. There's no way to date that Kaibab limestone that's on top. There's no way to date the Coconino sandstone that's the third layer down. Uh, There is no way to, to look at the shale deposits. There's no way to go through all of these layers that are there and actually date them. That's an impossibility. And so the only thing that is assumed is sedimentation rates that we know if we look today and a river flows, it deposits this much sand in X number of years. And so we just simply extrapolate that out. So of course, in order to end up with the billions of years that you actually have to have ultimately, then the Grand Canyon has to be hundreds of millions of years old, if not in excess of 1.4 to 1.8 billion years old. It has to be that way. Otherwise, there's not enough time. It isn't as dated. It's just there isn't enough time for evolution to occur. And so were these sedimentary rocks actually formed by millions of years of repeated local floods? Because that's the assumption. 
So each one of those sandstone layers or each one of those sedimentary layers of some kind must have been laid down by a local flood because they realized that that rock wouldn't have settled out that way unless there was some liquid involved. And so the assumption is that a flood would come in, deposit some silt, another flood would come in and deposit some silt, and another flood would come in, and in this case, some 30 different layers in the Grand Canyon, uh, all of local floods that covered most of the western half of the United States of America with silt in some cases over 400 feet deep. That's the assumption. You see people that don't take it to that level. You don't begin to think about, well, where did the silt come from that was 400 feet deep that covered the western half of the United States of America? Because somebody just simply says, well, it has to be this way because there's no other explanation for it, and they happen to have a PhD on the other end of their name, then the assumption is they're smarter than we are, which is entirely possible. They could very well be smarter than me, but it doesn't explain the evidence, and that's the problem. Or could it have all been laid down in a fairly short period of time by a massive worldwide flood which turns up all kinds of settlement, sediment all over the face of the earth? And I would report to you that that might actually be a better way to look at this evidence. So is there evidence of a global flood? One of the things that you would expect if God began to move around continents and God began to move around all kinds of layers of sand and mud and things that got laid down in a short period of time, you would expect to see some of those layers not laying perfectly flat, right? So if things got uplifted while they were still wet, in other words, they were basically still gooey, very scientific term, it means to be gooey, then you would find them bent someplace in the world. That is exactly what you find on every continent on the planet. Entire mountain ranges where not only are the layers not solid when they got moved, they were in fact very wet when they got moved, and in this case uplifted by more than 1,500 feet. So when you say that it has to be laid down in a river bottom and then left there to harden because the layers won't lay one right on top of another and stick together unless they are laid down successively. It's a principle of, of geology. So there has to be water. Those layers have to be bound together. Otherwise, there would be unconformity in there. There would be fractures. They would not be stuck together, and they would not turn into one cohesive rock layer. So those mountains happen to be the Sullivan River Canyon in, in British Columbia and Vancouver, not very far from Vancouver. But they exist all over the place. You're in the American Southwest, Slick Rock, Arizona. Those look like a whole lot of layers laid down in a very short period of time. They were all wet and they started moving while they were still wet. It's, it's not a hard concept to think on. Ireland, same thing. So were those laying around for millions of years? Or were they laid down in a very short period of time and then God moved what was underneath them? You tell me. It's in Texas. You see, the explanation that it takes billions of years or millions of years to lay down all kinds of sediment has been there for a very long time and then it gets moved does not explain these. This would be a complete anomaly to that theory. In other words, you can't do that to a rock that is already hard. Everybody understand that? It would fracture. It would break. 
it would be completely straight lines, and where pressure was applied to it, it would be lifted up and broken. These are not lifted up and broken, and in fact, in some places, they are turned as much as 270 degrees. So 360 is a full circle, 270 degrees of movement around while it's still wet. That kind of sounds like it was still gooey to me. It's not far from here. That's in San Juan Capistrano. Same exact thing. And again, it exists all over. So people say, well, it just has to be that way. Well, no, it really doesn't. And we know because of what I previously shared with you, gave you a couple of photos. I'll give you some additional information for you to kind of chew on. You look at Mount St. Helens as a model for rapid formation of sedimentary layers, you're going to find some pretty amazing facts. And you're going to be able to look at something that we know exactly when it occurred. We have zero doubt when these layers were laid down, and we know exactly what happened when they were laid down. So this is verifiable, this is repeatable, this is empirical evidence. So what you're going to look at next is empirical evidence that in fact it does not take millions, it does not take billions, it does not take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years to create rock layers. May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens was sleeping, it was dormant. You notice a little bulge there in the middle, Uh, that bulge began to move, uh, ultimately causing the north slope of the mountain to slide, and as I shared with you, uh, that is the largest landslide ever recorded in human history. So as far as dirt movement, that's the record. The whole mountain begins to slide basically to the north and to the east. Uh, At the same time, it uncorks the volcano itself, uh, releasing ash, steam, gas, and an amazing amount of water and mud. It melts all of the glaciers that were left. It basically unleashes uh, about 2 trillion uh, cubic feet of dirt, rock, ash, gas. Uh, Ultimately, it would turn into a full volcanic eruption, roll down the slopes, uh, and the results you you can go see today. By the time that cloud begins to flow, uh, more than half of what's represented in that picture is actually material that we would call uh, silt or sand. And so it's stirred up in the air. Uh, It buries absolutely everything in its path. Cars, 58 people lose their lives. Spirit Lake is filled with millions of dead trees. And all of this happens in, in the rough time span of about nine hours. So in nine hours... You have a gas cloud that comes out of Mount St. Helens that travels across uh, three full states and into a fourth state. This is just one volcano. So imagine that God decides, hey, I'm going to reshape the face of the earth. Uh, He has a few things at his disposal. He doesn't have to do one volcano. He doesn't have to do two. He could do hundreds. He could do thousands. He could do anything he wants. And so this gas cloud, this, in essence, ash cloud, shuts down air traffic over over three states completely. You cannot fly across Montana and Idaho and Washington State itself. Uh, So you have this this incredible amount of material that's been moved. By the time you you get to looking at this, what happens is all of this sediment flows into the Tuttle River Canyon uh, where it dams up the Tuttle River. And so all of that water begins to collect. Uh, Ultimately, uh, it is going to be rerouted into a completely new river system, 
and that new river system forms in exactly nine hours. So you have Spirit Lake buried to a depth of 100 feet, um, most of the other drainages for 23 square miles, completely plugged and clogged up, and for 22 months, ultimately, uh, nothing flows. But what happens in this little nine-hour time span, an entire new canyon is formed. It's 1,000 feet wide. It's 140 feet deep. Uh, when, when you look at it, uh, you, you might be tempted to think that, well, you know, it's, you know, that could have been thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Um, but it, it not only didn't, it all happened in nine hours. And it happened in nine hours and is fully, completely, and totally filled with sediment layers exactly like you would find in the Grand Canyon, which is purported to be hundreds of millions of years old. And so when you look at it, you can begin to see some of the layering in there. Now, remember, we know exactly when this happened. We know when the layers were laid down. We know how many of them were laid down. As that water began to recede very quickly, it formed basically a mini Grand Canyon. Matter of fact, it's uh, about half. It's about half of the length. Um, it in spots now. It's a little more than half the width of the narrow parts of the Grand Canyon. But you say, well, where'd the rock layers go? You can see them. Those rock layers were laid down in exactly nine hours. We can mark the date, the time, and people look at it and they say, well, it has to be thousands of years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. No, no, it doesn't. And in fact, for scope and scale, you can, you can see them, they're very clearly stratified. Look at the fine layers in that. People say, wow, you know, what? A, these fine layers have to indicate that they, it was very slow amounts of time. No, the water just changed speed. The weight of the sediment was heavier or lighter. Things floated. Things did not float. Rocks were involved. The very thing, same things that you'd see in any type of river flowing today. Those hundreds of sediment layers were formed, uh, in this case, actually in a few minutes because of the weight of the sediments that are in them. That little river did not make that canyon. We know that is an absolute fact. Could it be that that little river didn't make that canyon? Well, let me give you a theory. This has been fairly well researched. If, in fact, after the flood, God began to lift up what we call the Great Basin here in the state of California, parts of Arizona, Utah, uh, even a little bit of Nevada... Now, there's an area of about four states that have an exit point that is currently located at the Grand Canyon. And if you know a little bit about the Grand Canyon, also the Grand Canyon on the north rim is almost 9,000 feet tall. So it's not a little low area, it's actually a high area. It's one of the problems that's always kind of baffled geologists about the Grand Canyon itself because it's not low, it's not in a low spot, it's in a high spot. And in fact, there are a number of areas in the Grand Canyon, when you actually look at the, the rim of the Grand Canyon, there are actually pour-over places where there are, are what are called potholes, where water is actually churned in a very rapid fashion using boulders and, and larger aggregate that have actually churned holes in the top of the cliff. They shouldn't exist in the top of the cliff. They should only exist in the bottom of the cliff. 
And so as you look at this, imagine that that silt uh, is blocking someplace around the Grand Canyon, the mouth of the Grand Canyon, and then it opens up. Well, it's exactly what happened at Mount St. Helens, and it is absolutely not an unreasonable uh, way to look at the evidence that we see to say that perhaps as the continent that we know is the North American continent when it was being formed after the flood, as these plates are colliding together and the Sierra Nevadas are being thrust up and the Rockies are being thrust up and faultings going on and all kinds of, especially on the Pacific coast, you have volcanic activity, the entire uh, Sierra, northern Sierra Nevada, along with the Cascades, are, are very highly volcanic. Uh, here in California, we have Mount Lassen, Mount Shasta, uh, both active volcanoes. Uh, we have actually Mammoth Mountain itself. People think Mammoth Mountain is, is dormant. It's not actually really all that dormant. It's one of the most active uh, geologic regions in the country. But we have all kinds of evidence that uh, these things are relatively new. If you, try, if you drive up to, say, Mammoth and you look at the Thousand Cones area, they'll actually tell you that the last time that that erupted was only about 900 years ago. So we receive a lot of information. That information is prejudiced information. So I'm encouraging you to use your mind. It is not the only explanation that the Earth is billions of years old for the evidence that we see. One of those cheap evidences is what we call polystrate fossils. Polystrate fossils are, are fossils that go through multiple layers that are supposed to represent anywhere that they would otherwise be found, supposed to rep represent thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary time. Now we find them, especially on the East Coast here of the United States, uh, they're very often found in coal seams. And the reason that that's important is if that was laid down very quickly, uh, what's the heaviest part of a tree? Anybody know? It's the base, it's the trunk, it's called the root ball. And the reason the root ball is very heavy is very often it's not just the tree, it's a whole bunch of rocks that are stuck in the root ball itself. If you ever dig up a tree, you'll figure this out very quickly. Sometimes it's easier to cut the tree off than it is to dig the tree up because of the root ball. So if you have a tree that has been uprooted by a flood, that tree initially begins to float in a semi-liquid state in silt, mud, and a whole bunch of other stuff, rocks, all flowing rather quickly, what do you suspect would be on the bottom as those trees begin to stand up as they're actually floating for the most part because they still have all their foliage on them? You expect the trunk of the tree to be upright and the root ball on the bottom. Interestingly enough, that is exactly what these fossils do. That one's in the Kettle's coal mine, uh, the root ball's on the bottom, and the total rock layers at that tree, it's almost a 30-foot tall piece of petrified tree trunk. It extends through well over 100,000 years worth of evolutionary time. So is the tree 100,000 years old, or did the fossil get formed in a very short period of time in a whole bunch of gooey mud? I would report to you that it's highly likely it got formed in a very short period of time in a whole bunch of mud. That's a much better explanation that somehow uh, you were able to take a tree and after the rock was formed, you kind of stuffed it in a crack someplace so that it could kind of fit through all those geologic layers. And the other problem that you have is the same siltation that's in the rock layers is found in the tree trunk. So you can't move them. So when they become lithified or turned into stone, which is what that means... When they become lithified, you can actually see the sand layers going through the tree trunk itself. 
because it's been absorbed into the, into the Cambrian layer of the tree. So uh, we have all kinds of things like this all over the world. In the Andes, this guy's laying on a, at, uh, a little over 11,000 feet. He's laying on the top of a clam. Uh, anybody ever been down to the pier at Redondo and looked at the mussels on the sides of the pier pilings when they die? What happens to them? They open up, right? So if they open up when they die, if they're closed and fossilized, what happened to them? It means they got buried when they were still alive. This is the top of the Andes. This is not out in the middle of the seafloor. That's what happens to a mussel. Clams, all of those mollusks open up. So it doesn't take millions of years to make fossilized anything. It takes the right conditions. It takes a whole bunch of water. It takes a whole bunch of silt. And it takes them being buried very, very rapidly. That's how fossils form. And the reason we know that is we have all kinds of things all over the world that we can look at where fossils have been formed in extremely short periods of time. I don't know how many of you are in here and you're children of the 60s, the 50s and 60s. Remember the world's largest ball of twine? Or chief yellow horse out there in Arizona, you know, you drive for like 400 miles. It's only 300 more miles to chief yellow. You, You would find these types of places where there would be some... Uh, you know, attraction that you would go see. In this case, uh, how about a petrified dog? Petrified dog inside of a petrified log. Now, I'm pretty sure Fido is not all that old because Fido still got his collar on. So he's not an ancient dog species. He's a fairly young dog species. Probably was in there, I believe, for about 50 to 80 years. Uh, But because of the way this log ended up going into a river and being buried in sand, he in essence ends up lithified, 20 foot up in a hollowed out chestnut tree. I don't know what happened to this cowboy, but I can tell you what happened to his legs. They turned into fossils. That is the fossilized leg bone of a cowboy. It's been CT scanned back in 1997, uh, found in Texas. Not only is the, is the fossilized leg bone in there, but the, you can see actually the stone around his leg uh, to where his tissues actually soaked up enough mineralized material that they themselves, the actual tissues, became partly calcified and turned into, into what we would call uh, a fossil, along with his boots. Pretty sure those are not millions of years old. Pretty sure they're not hundreds of thousands of years old. Pretty sure they're not 100 years old. Maybe 100, 150, who knows? New Zealand. This is found inside of a mine. Completely fossilized bowler hat. I'm pretty sure that was not worn by a Cro-Magnon man who fell down a well. Um, But it did soak up a lot of minerals and became a rock. That is a rock hat. Uh, completely mineralized, completely fossilized. How about flour? People think sometimes, you know, well, we'll never find something like that. Well, not only have we found flour, but in Eureka Springs in Arkansas, uh, they had some sacks of flour, just exactly the right conditions, got buried in mud, and ultimately those sacks of flour uh, turned into completely solid rock. It's not millions of years old. 
How many of you have been into a major cavern someplace here in the United States? You know, maybe you went to Carlsbad Caverns or one of those caverns. You see flowstone and stalactites and stalagmites. What are you always told? Millions of years of flowing water going over and it creates these stalactites and stalagmites depending on which way they fall. They're coming from the ceiling or they're coming up out of the floor. doesn't really matter which one's which. But we're always told that they're thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of years old. Well, we kind of have some problems with some of those things because not only can we see them grow, we actually know when these things were opened up and when there was nothing in there. Uh, These soda straws, if they were found in a cavern someplace in the United States without them being underneath a monument in Washington, D.C., we would automatically assume that these are at least 10 to 15,000 years old. Not only are they not 10 to 15,000 years old, they're not millions of years old. We know that, in fact, uh, they were built after, they came after 1922. And that photo was taken in the 1960s. So mineralization and flow and flowstone and all those kinds of things are just assumptions. They're based on what we currently see. They're not scientifically testable. You cannot repeat them. And we have all kinds of information that things exist all over the world that when we look at them, we would kind of go, you know, that doesn't really make sense with your narrative. Of course, we're told that fossilized animals take thousands, millions of years. That is a living bat that was completely fossilized. It's laying on top of a pile uh, of flowstone. And that bat actually fossilized before it decayed. Most of you know that if you leave, you know, something out on the edge of the road, it doesn't last very long, right? Begins to decay, begins to fall apart. The bones get scattered, scavengers come along. The the rest of the bones of that particular bat were found right next to it on the ground. Those bones could be dated and they were less than 500 years old. And so the flowstone that's on the top of that is supposed to be over 10,000 years old, and yet there's a bat in it, and we know exactly how old the bones are because we can accurately date those. There's a nice stalactite, stalagmite that grew together after just 40 years in Indiana. That's, most of you remember Lewis and Clark, George Rogers Clark Memorial. That's a stalactite, stalagmite that joined together that's only 40 years old. About dinosaurs. People always like to talk about dinosaurs. When you think about dinosaurs, we kind of have to remember where it is that, that we got the name. If the Bible's true, then there was probably a period of time when dinosaurs and man coexisted on the face of the earth. I know people don't like, oh, you're crazy, because they're millions of years old. And mankind came along a bunch later. You know, there's a whole, whole article in National Geographic about what's going on in the Olduvite Gorge, Gorge again, and they're finding this nearly complete fossil, and they finally put it together of this fossilized man. It's exactly one. Now, it's not hundreds, it's not thousands, it's not millions, but they have found another fossil. Could it be that man and dinosaurs actually existed together? I have no idea why it's in black. I think it was in white when I put it up there, but it's not. Ancient records, dinosaurs and man, dragons, virtually every culture, same thing as the flood legend, virtually every culture on the face of the earth 
has dragon legends. We don't know exactly what they are, but they exist, oddly enough, in all kinds of cave drawings, all kinds of sculpture, all kinds of pottery. There it is. That's nice. That looks better. It's easier to read. Pottery. And then, of course, there's the existence of living dinosaurs. When I say living dinosaurs, we'll look at a couple. There we go. Otherwise, oh, this is cool. I should have remembered I did this. It has a whole new effect to it, doesn't it? <laughs> you have in your Bibles in Job chapter 40 uh, this, this mention of behemoth. Um, and it says he eats grass like an ox, he moves his tail like a cedar tree, his sinews of his thighs are knit together, his bones are as tubes of brass, his limbs are like bars of iron. So it sounds like a fairly substantial animal, right? But it very specifically mentions its tail, and in mentioning its tail, it says it's like a cedar tree, and people go, well, it had to be like an elephant or a hippo or something. Um, that's, the, that's the northbound end of a southbound elephant there, and thinking that's not, not, that's just not a cedar tree right there, I'm pretty sure. It's just, that's non-cedar tree-like. That's kind of like a branch off of something, but I don't think it's a cedar tree. Hippo's kind of the same story. It's kind of got the most pitiful tail on the face of the earth. Um, they actually normally don't exceed more than 18 inches long. Uh, so, so that one's kind of not a cedar tree either. But when you think about some of the dinosaurs that we've come to know and love, especially as children, um, that's a brachiosaur, and they have about a 60-foot tail, which oddly enough is the average size of a cedar tree. So whether that's what they're referring to, whether that's a Bible talking about that, we really don't know. And then we have all these burial stones from Peru, and I, I need to be really careful here because there are a number of them that are fakes, but there are a whole bunch of them that are real. So there were a whole bunch of them found. They're absolutely authentic and absolutely real. And the ones that I'm about to show you are on the real side. These are the ones that have actually been found, dated, the patina dated on them. And we're fairly accurate on things that are 500 to a couple thousand years old. So uh, burial stones. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of looks like Mr. Allosaurus chewing on Mr. Inca dude. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I guess he could have made that up in his mind. I, I'm really not sure. Um, but I think one of the critical pieces of information is when were the dinosaurs discovered? You see, most people believe that somehow we had knowledge of dinosaurs before we had knowledge of dinosaurs. Believe it or not, dinosaurs were actually not discovered at all. The very first leg bone was found in 1676 by Robert Plott. It wasn't until 1841 that Richard Owen came to realize that these were not regular animals, but they needed a whole new class of animals and it was then that he, just, he decided to call them dinosauria, which means terrible lizards. So you really didn't have anyone understanding that there were whole animals beyond the leg bone until oddly just before the time of Charles Darwin's origin of the species. So at that point in time, nobody had ever seen a complete dinosaur fossil. Everybody get it? There, there were no dinosaurs like you see in the natural history museums today that have been fully mounted with, you know, an Allosaurus or a T-Rex or a Stegosaur or any of the commonly known dinosaurs. There were none on the face of the earth anywhere in 1841. 
So if in fact these Peru burial stones are legit and they're real, and you've got Incans carving them, and they can be effectively dated to maybe as much as 500 BC, but certainly uh, in the the middle of the last millennia, then where did they get the understanding that there were these large, terrible lizards on the face of the earth unless somebody had seen one? The strange thing is, is when you look at these burial stones, they they contain a whole bunch of different kinds of dinosaurs. There's, you know, some Incan king riding on the back of a triceratops. They exist in pottery from all over Latin America. Uh, That happens to be what looks like to me to be a brachiosaur. Uh, That pottery was easily datable because it's got some carbon in it. 500 B.C. to 200 A.D., Now remember, we never saw a full skeleton until the 1840s. So nobody went down to their local Barnes & Noble and pulled out Mr. Dino's marvelous journey and said, oh, let's replicate this in some pottery. And I don't think they took that much hallucinogenic drugs. So maybe, I don't know. But they were very accurate because they didn't carve one, they didn't carve two, they, they carved hundreds of these things. Another one that looks suspiciously like a brachiosaur. Probably most of you have seen what's going to follow, and so I'll make it fairly quick for you. Um, Most of you know that here in California, if you've studied your history books, we've had a few strange occurrences here on the coast of California. Uh, We've also had some in the Pacific Ocean in general, uh, and we have come to believe that there, it is entirely possible that that particular dinosaur that's supposed to be between 600 or 66 and 203 million years old actually may well still be alive in the oceans. Now, that's a big beast. Uh, these things are, are generally close to 60 feet long. Uh, oddly enough, back in the 1970s, a Japanese fishing trawler uh, trolling off the coast of New Zealand actually brought up something that looks suspiciously exactly like a plesiosaur. And so this one happened to be 32 feet long, has front legs, it had a head, it had a neck, uh, definitely was not a whale because it also has feet, which aren't in that uh, particular photo. But as you look at it, you can kind of see as it tapers down. Uh, so, so this thing is hauled up from 900 feet down off the coast of New Zealand, so much so that they believe that that's what it was, uh, that the Japanese actually created a postage stamp marking the fact that they had pulled up a plesiosaur. So, did they exist? Did they not exist? Were they in the water? Did they get churned up? Did all of them die? Did not all of them die? Were there some that were aquatic uh, animals that existed that managed to survive inside of all those floodwaters? I don't know that we can say for sure, but it's not that far-fetched. There's an awful lot of people that believe that we've actually found a, a plesiosaur. We did the same thing here in California. Uh, up in Monterey, and in fact, it, this particular animal was called the modern-day Nessie. Uh, if you were to have seen it, uh, that was the head of it. Um, I don't know about you, but that does not look like any whale. Uh, it doesn't have teeth like a whale. Uh, it, it actually had teeth, as in teeth like a, a dinosaur. Uh, it's included in that book, so if you want to get it, Shipwrecks and Sea Monsters off California's Central Coast, uh, the whole story of this particular animal. Uh, it was It was completely and totally researched by a number of different uh, scientists from all over the state of California. And then finally they said, well, we want to have an impartial view of this. Uh, So they brought in some Canadian uh, paleontologists who looked at it. 
Uh, the conclusion ultimately was because of the size. It could not possibly be a, uh, any type of a dolphin or whale that in fact was likely something like a plesiosaur or some other uh, aquatic, what we would call a dinosaur. Uh, they, some claimed it was a rare whale, but this thing obviously has a neck. And so by the time it was all said and done, uh, E.L. Wallace, who was the president of the Natural History Society of British Columbia, uh, ended up taking a look at it, writing a 500-page a report on it, ultimately said that he believed that this thing was a type of plesiosaur. So, dinosaurs and man? Possible. Certainly not disproven. There's enough evidence to, to question anyone who says, well, you know, the dinosaurs existed millions and millions and millions of years before man. Well, the fact of the matter is, we didn't discover dinosaurs until the 1840s. We still only have a handful of full and complete dinosaur skeletons. We're finding new ones all the time. But the fact of the matter is, they're laid down in sediment. They were buried very rapidly and eventually turned into stone. That's the reason that we even have them. So it fits into a flood narrative as well as it does anything else. You will say, well, where's the ark? We find out that it lands here in the mountains of Ararat. Uh, and Noah, there in the verse 4, it says it rested. Now, where is it? I'm going to tell you straight up, we don't know. Uh, there, there are a number, of, a number of government agencies in Turkey that claim that they have uh, found it. They've photographed all kinds of things. Let me tell you a couple of things about the ark itself. The ark was made out of wood. Amen? Anybody know what happens to wood when you leave it laying around for thousands of years? Above ground. Um, it's going to be used for houses, it's going to be burnt as firewood, it's going to be collected, it's going to be absconded with. Chances are it's not going to lay on the top of anything for a long period of time without somebody disturbing it. So the chances of us ever finding it intact is almost zero. Secondarily to that, I believe that God would probably prevent us from finding the Ark of Noah for one specific reason, because we as people tend to worship things like that. You would have some kind of gigantic monument. That little hut that's right, that's actually, they built a visitor center to, to visit this anomaly in the dirt. This anomaly in the dirt has since been researched. Uh, there's some wood that's in it, um, but it, it, it does not appear that that's the actual ark itself, even though they built a visitor center and said that that is exactly what it is. Nobody actually knows whether that is the ark, but I do, I do not believe that it is. But what we do know is this. God hates sin. That we know for sure. Without any question, God hates sin. That was the reason that God destroyed the earth with his flood. Because the heart of man was deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And it was heading towards being more wicked each day. And God said enough. But there's also some important points to note in all of this. God gave mankind 120 years for people to change their minds, to repent, to turn around. And so as he, as he does this, look, God's speaking to us today. Where was God with Noah? He was inside with him. God locked the door. God shut him in. God said, I got this. There's no way that Noah could get out of God's gracious salvation because that salvation was built on God. That was not built on Noah. So you see, the greater picture is if we disbelieve that the flood even occurred, then this whole story becomes somewhat of a fairy tale itself. And this is the part that we don't want to miss. Because this is God saying, I love you. 
This is God reminding us that you and I, as we sit here tonight, God still loves us and God still wants people to repent from their sin and be saved. As we think on it, you know, God's, God's been fair to us. He's been good to us. He's watched over us. He hasn't, you know, ultimately looked at us and said, you know, it's just not worth it. But God has, in that sense, just as he was with Noah and his family, he's with us in every storm. This is a violent storm, a storm of monumental proportion, a storm ultimately that would reshape the face of the earth. And God's with you. He's with me. He goes with us through these things. But remember, God promised Noah. He said, if you'll be obedient, and you'll do what I tell you to do, and you'll trust me by faith and get inside that ark, I will save you and all of your family. Anyone who goes with you. And so God kept that promise to Noah. God God said, look, I'll take care of it. He also at the same time promised he'd never do this again. And he never has. And he never will. God's not going to punish the earth. He's not going to punish this planet again uh, with water. But he still hates sin. And so when we think on the flood of Noah, if you choose to dismiss it as a fairy tale, then you've actually got a problem with God's plan of salvation. And that's why it's so important that we don't just dismiss the flood of Noah and say, well, it's just a fairy tale. Because it's the first picture that we have of atonement. It's the first picture we have really clearly of redemption. Yes, we saw it in the, in the life of Adam and Eve. God slaughtered an innocent animal and covered them with skins. But this one, he says, look, here's my plan. I want you to get inside this ark and I want you to be covered because a storm's coming and you're going to die if you don't make this choice. This is the complete package in that sense. God provides us an ark. His name is Jesus. Because look, if you'll run to him, if you'll come to me, I will save all who come in. All you need to do is ask. Enter in. God's going to get you safely home. He's going to get us safely home, just as he did Noah. So before you dismiss out of hand the story of Noah, and whether you begin to debate whether dinosaurs existed with man or you think that those things couldn't have happened. I think there's some reasonable, right-thinking people with multiple doctorates on the other side of their name that believe that it's entirely possible that exactly what I just showed you is true. The more important thing is do you believe God? Do you believe that He's that good? That while the earth is going the wrong way, while everybody save eight people is doing the wrong thing, God's still saying, if you're willing and if you'll enter in, I will save you. Well, that's how good your God is. And I pray that we, we rest in that, we trust in that. And whether we get all the science right, whether, whether we can conclusively say that we know certain things about how God did what he did, and we may well be able to tell those things. There may be science that's going to come along and cause us to have to rethink some of these things. We don't know. But I know this. God loves us. And he provides a way for us to be saved. And that ark is a picture of him providing a way for us to be saved 
in the midst of the storm, in the midst of a world that is absolutely going the wrong way. If you don't get anything else, get that. Amen? Would you stand? We're going to pray. Worship team's going to come back out, lead us in a final song. Maybe you need to just do some more resting and trusting. And I know I've thrown a lot of stuff at you in a short period of time. But I pray it just get you thinking about how good God is. That there's no reason for us to disbelieve what Scripture says. We have every reason to believe that God is true to His Word. He's given us enough information that we can reasonably hold on uh, to those things which are issues of faith for us. So, so don't let your faith be tested in such a way that you abandon your faith. Cling to that faith. Trust the Lord and run to Him. Amen? Father, thank You for tonight. And we pray that You'd move amongst us as Your people. Lord, we thank You for the real ark, <laughs> the ark of our salvation. Jesus, we thank You for coming to this earth and opening the way, Lord, that to any who would come in, and that You would come in and sup with them and them with You, and they would be saved. Lord, thank You that the door is still open uh, to the ark of salvation. We thank You that grace still extends in our day and time. And we pray that there's no one here tonight that would forsake that grace. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that's not run to You, that tonight they would run to You. As we close in songs, the pastors are available, that they would come and, and invite You, Jesus, uh, into their lives, that they would come inside with You, and You will be with them. Father, we bless Your name. We thank You for Your goodness to us, for Your Word, for the power it has, Lord, to transform and change our thinking. We bless you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.